Welcome again to the Doomer Optimism Podcast. Uh, today we have two prior guests um, who uh, we at Doomer Optimism align with quite a bit, uh, Sean Chamberlain and Chris Mage. Um, you might recall that with Chris, Chris has been on at least a couple times, two, three times actually you've been on, Chris, when we were in a pre-series with Vandana Shiva and yourself, so that's actually the fourth time you were on a panel about yeah. distributism, and then we had you on to talk about uh, your book, Saying No to a Farm-Free Future. So this is your fifth time, I think. So you're, you're wow. showing up by the moment, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> and Sean, uh, we had you on, uh, had you on um, a couple months ago or about a month ago, and we talked about how Doom or optimism is following in the footsteps of dark optimism. Uh, maybe we're slightly Americanized version. Uh, and we had a lot to talk about there. And then what brought this conversation about is, Chris, you you listened to the conversation that Sean and I had. Uh, you, you found it interesting and you reached out to us suggesting that there were a lot of topics that, uh, based on that conversation, that we could explore, um, kind of comparing, contrasting lean logic, small farm future um the the kind of structural big picture macro uh and the kind of the spiritual existential um aspects of this uh and so maybe that's maybe that's a any anything else in terms of lead-in that any of you want to add that sounds good you set me up there as if i've got answers to all of those uh <laughs> <laughs> over to you those, Chris. Uh, those, uh, yeah. <laughs> those big issues you've just laid out like oh yes i've got the answers there no but um yeah, yeah lots of things to talk about as we were just saying so um, okay yeah well let's start off by something that you mentioned sean so when um is is that you know, Chris and I like to think, especially Chris, and uh, uh, but we both like to think a lot about kind of big picture food systems, energy, agriculture, whether it'll be a small farm future or an eco-modernist uh, urban future. And you've pointed out that it's probably not going to be either of those and either kind of extreme, uh, you know, um, it's it, you seem to take a little bit more of a well we we don't actually know what's going to happen and so let's focus more on kind of the intimate the community the spiritual uh is that a fair characterization of kind of uh what you were saying about this conversation broadly yeah i mean i think um you know i think the one thing we know about the future is that our predictions will be wrong to some extent um yeah. and you know i was fairly recently asked to sum up the future in one word as I saw it and um, my word was diverse you know I, I think we're we're still going to have Silicon Valley for a good while we're still going to have you know small farms we're still going to have all these things happening around the world um, and for me the really interesting questions not that I'm saying the others aren't interesting in themselves but for me the really interesting questions are around how do we improve it you know how do we make it better than it would otherwise be um, and uh, and so that's kind of where, yeah, where my work has, has tended to focus. Um, yeah, I could talk a lot about the different ways in which it has, but essentially that it's and so and for me, when 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 we take that as our starting point, as we slightly touched on in our previous conversation, Jason, um, you quite quickly get into kind of fundamentally spiritual questions, you know, like what what's the point of life? You know, what are we doing here? What what? what what's it important to engage with what's it important to do with our time um and 
and so yeah I kind of felt like if you know it, I love reading Chris's work around the kind of big picture questions but I felt like if we just talked about that I'd probably just defer to Chris an awful lot <laughs> um but uh but yeah I think I'd be really interested to hear you know the differences in our takes on what it makes sense to do at the personal level at the communal level um and the extent to which that big person and that big picture analysis feeds into that that's that's kind of where my where my juices really get flowing Chris, do you want to respond to that? Sure, yeah. I mean, I, I, it was really interesting listening to the pod you guys did and uh, interesting hearing Sean, you know, you talking about your changing focus over time. I remember you sort of saying how you used to spend a lot of time on Twitter arguing about climate change and, and then kind of moved into the, you know, that, that more... Um, uh, you know, partly more open engagement with other people and 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 sort of focusing more on the on the local and spiritual. And it was kind of interesting because in some ways I feel like I I am on that same path. You know, po possibly not quite um uh, as far you know as far along that trajectory as um, on Twitter, huh? as, as you are. <laughs> but you know, certainly writing the certainly writing the book, the the saying no book. I um, you know where I was doing a lot of number crunching and and reading a lot of um, academic journal articles. I was very much in my mind that this is the last book like this. I'm gonna damn well write. You know, <laughs> but uh, but part of um, I suppose when you had that discussion about you know George's trajectory and you know you. It was interesting hearing you talk about him and Paul Kingsnorth and, you know, as you said, sort of old friends who've sort of gone in different Moore, directions. Yeah. And I think, yeah, 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 George. Um, um, and I suppose, you know, maybe what I just thought was worth saying is you know, my sort of rationale for writing the book or or for doing the sort of number crunching, you know, what what Ashley Colby calls spreadsheet brain sort of stuff um, is not. I mean, you know, I. Kind of got a little bit goaded into writing that uh, partly by George sort of saying you know you you know you you're not counting the costs you're not you know show me your numbers you know that so I was like oh well all right then you know but it was kind of you know what I'm not trying to do is sort of predict sort of say like um, you know I, I think you know where George has got to and, and you laid that out I think nicely in your dis previous discussion with Jason is like oh my god you know so many crises so much you know proverbial hitting the fan um, you know what can we do and, and then it's quite a natural thing to reach for this kind of magic solution you know the magic potion the manufactured food that's going to solve it so I kind of felt the need to look at some of those numbers and say come on seriously this is not going to work you know we are um you know we are deep into uh, a collapse scenario um and we're not going to get out of it by 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 sort of these magic techno fixes so i kind of so rather than saying um so i kind of felt the need to lay that out in in some sense quantitatively and empirically but what I'm not trying to do is sort of say, uh, but but don't worry, folks, you know, look at my alternative sort of um, hippie fix that I've got sort of thing. You know, I, I, it's kind of like I think we are going to I mean, I agree in a sense. What I'm saying is I agree with you that the future is going to be plural. The future is going to be people, you know, figuring things out in different ways because they have to, um, because a lot of, um, you know, familiar assumptions are falling apart. I think 
that's going to involve drawing on older knowledges and and sort of local older you know food systems and 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 sort of um low impact food systems that have been sort of figured out um, in the past all around the world you know not not kind of mindlessly just trying to reapply them but you know learning some of the lessons that people learned from older food systems where people didn't have you know lots of finance or lots of energy available so i kind of see it as a sort of clearing the ground for exact for exactly that kind of vision that you have and and you know part of that is is involves um asking those big questions that you were talking about you know there's there is a lot of philosophy or a lot of spirituality in this you know what what are we here for you know why are we doing this how how do how does this make sense so I kind of see my, um, you know, my two recent books I've written about this, although they are quite sort of, um, you know, spreadsheet brained, I, I kind of feel like they're sort of a ground pre preparing effort, uh, you know, not not to sort of say, guide people, say, here you are folks, and here is my big answer. But, you know, to say there are no big answers, we need small local community based answers. Um, but but don't get kind of dazzled by this kind of tech narrative that you don't have to worry about this because you know the government or the corporations or whoever are gonna are gonna solve this. Um, you know they're not you know they're not coming to save your ass. <laughs> Therefore, you know we need to sort of take that on ourselves. So you know that that's the way in which I would frame it, which I think is sort of consonant with um, a lot of the things you were saying in the, in that discussion with Jason. Yeah, I mean, how I kind of thread this needle, I, I think, between both of what you have said is that we do need the impetus towards pragmatic action, right? To, like you just said, Chris, to recognize that, you know, we can't just rely on larger scale systems to always uh, be providing all of our needs uh, for, for a variety of reasons. And so to me, it's worthwhile making the argument, uh, maybe not you know, or at least countering, you know, certain visions that are very tech enabled that would basically, you know, take agency out of our hands. Now, of course, George talks about local, you know, your 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 local kind of uh, food uh, manufacturing facility, whatever, owned by a workers cooperative. But as you point out, Chris, uh, especially with industrial progress it tends to centralize even more than than agriculture does and so that's yeah. realistic um the other thing that that always is in the back of my mind is that you know the power dynamics involved with all of this um as we've seen throughout history means that even if individuals and communities want to kind of tinker and carve out their own path oftentimes they're not allowed to they're not able to because you know, they're taken off their land for whatever reason. Um, the reasons now might be different, but uh, the result will probably be the same. Uh, and, and so then the question comes up, how much is it, you know, how much is making good arguments um, counter to something? How much does that matter? Will they just do it anyway? Uh, who are we trying to convince? Uh, are we trying to convince enough people that it can be kind of a counter hegemony to to actually, you know, explore more personalized communal, um, you know, uh, trajectories. Uh, that's, you know, I, I guess I've thrown out a few questions there, but yeah, I'm curious, Sean, what, what do you think about that? Um, 
Well, yeah, as I said before, like when I say that um, it's not quite the spreadsheet brain isn't quite what gets my juices flowing. I absolutely didn't intend to um, suggest that it's not important. And I, I love having Chris doing that work that I can point people to. So I don't have to. Um, and, you know, I, I I love the thing you wrote recently, actually, Chris, about you were talking about sort of older um, techniques and possibilities. And you were talking about the the madness of, of um, demeaning agriculture as being this, um, I think, uh, neolithic um technology and how you know we we need to move on from that and you were like yeah you know like things like you know the wheel and knives we absolutely mustn't be using those anymore either because they're so you know from past eras of technology i thought that was a a lovely way of putting it and i i think you know what it what it comes down to and i i touched on this in our previous conversation jason but i kind of got sidetracked by myself before i kind of finished saying about it i think as, as someone pointed out to me that um i feel like in terms of who we're having this conversation with for me, it's everyone who's figuring out what on earth they're going to do with their lives, um, as Chris kind of touched on, you know, and, and if the, the mainstream story is, you know, leave it to the big players, they've got it all in hand, then mm. it's really important work to show why that's not the moral of the story. <laughs> mm. um, and uh, and I think where where so many environmentalists get is is what I call environmentalist favorite argument, which I say I touched on before, which is this thing between, on the one hand, you know, we've got these incredible problems and we need fundamental paradigmatic, paradigmatic, you know, revolutionary change. Otherwise we're just dealing with symptoms and we're not really getting to the root. And you hear that argument all the time in all these contexts. And on the other hand, you'll have someone saying, no, but we don't have time for a revolution. You know, we don't have time for paradigmatic change. Everything's incredibly urgent. We have to operate within the frameworks that we've got now. And what I think is so frequently left out of that argument, which we hear again and again, is that both sides are right. You know, that yes, we absolutely need paradigmatic change. And yes, we absolutely don't have time for that if we're going to deal with all these incredibly urgent problems that we're facing. And for me, the really interesting conversation happens when we can get beyond that debate, which is never resolved because both sides are right, um, and get to the more interesting conversation, which, as Chris says, comes down, down to, you know, the scenarios that all the environmental books warn us about. You know, if we don't change our ways, we're going to end up here. Well, OK, so that's probably where we're going to end up. Um, and, it, it, you know, it goes under names like collapse. And, you know, one thing I, I love about Lean Logic and the Small Farm Future is that they both take that, unlike all the rest of the environmental canon or the majority of it, they take that as the starting point. You know, what what does it make sense to do in the context that this whole thing is charging off a cliff, this global society? What does it, how do we make that better than it would otherwise be? How do we prepare for that? How do we maybe change that trajectory in some useful ways? And for me, that's so much more interesting than the endless debate about, you know, how bad is it? How urgent is it? Um, and so, yeah, for me, that's 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 who the conversation's for. And that's why the spreadsheet brain work that Chris does and other people do is so important, because, um, you know, because this culture, broadly speaking, is is massively dominated by that. You know, if you don't have the numbers, then um, you don't have a voice. You know, you're, you're just you're just a, some kind of crazy romantic. And and that was in many ways, I think, where Paul Kingsnorth and George Monbiot kind of parted ways, because Paul is very much about well, I'm not actually into the numbers and actually it's not just older technologies and ways of growing food and ways of like building our, our social future. It's also older ways of relating to what's real and what's true and what's meaningful. Um, and, you know, the the kind of 
capital R romantic um, perspective and the the mythic perspective just you know they're just seen as completely irrelevant by by the mainstream today. And so I think if we can engage with spreadsheet brain enough to show that it actually doesn't have any neat and tidy answers then maybe it, it leaves open the space for the more interesting conversation about well hang on if that doesn't have any answers then then what <laughs> and i think that's of interest well, to everyone once once we've once we've opened it up yeah i mean that's really interesting uh, um and, and and i sort of wonder about that sometimes because i think you know sometimes when you engage um with um quantitative arguments or with or within a particular kind of expert discourse you uh, you know that's partly where i've got to and partly where i was interested in the, the 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 spiritual or the mythic dimension is i think sometimes you actually you never get out of spreadsheet brain and 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 so i can understand where someone like paul is coming from um and i thought you made that point really nicely in the, in your previous conversation sean where you know i think if you're working within an academic discipline you have a lot of shared reference points and it can be useful so rather than sitting around trying to agree on everything you actually do already agree on a lot of things because you're trained in the discipline and so you tend to home in on the points where you disagree and as you were saying that's how you make progress you, you test ideas and blah, blah blah but I think you know but you made the point that that way of thinking has kind of infected too much of our public discourse and and I think that's right you know and certainly you know it's it's like having an argument at an academic conference you know there's all sorts of ways in which it's it's been made to be relatively congenial whereas if you're on twitter you know not so much and and and, and people are kind of invoking this fact or that fact or this study or that study and and it really doesn't you know it generates heat but not light in the way that the, the academic discourse does so you know, I think that's uh, that's a difficulty in where we've got to. In, uh, and also the, the, the sort of power of science, um, you know, science is kind of a, a method for, for doing experiments, you know, for sort of eliminating biases. Once we, when we translate it into the realm of public policy and talk about, you know, following the science, it then becomes much more problematic. And but that uh, if, if you don't mind me just developing this theme, Jason, for, for sure. a minute, that was the sort of question that I'm really struggling with at the moment, and I've been writing a few blog posts about it, and that it kind of leapt out at me in your previous discussion. You know, I think because I come from that kind of academic background, it's quite easy for me to sort of react to something like, oh, you know, I disagree with that, and, you know, and then sort of generate a, a, a discussion out of that. And I like the way that you guys were talking about uh, actually often it's better to sort of try and find where you agree with somebody and, and certainly in everyday life you know when you meet somebody you know your natural reaction is to try and find common ground with them to sort of search for some common register and that's how you know that's how society that's how sociability is generated you know you don't immediately start looking like how you know how can I find a way to disagree with this person you know is is, is sort of <laughs> not how you go about things you know but I think there's a difficulty, and, I, and you touched on it in your conversation, but I think didn't really develop it. I mean, we've got to this situation now where I think there are some of the old, I mean, you did discuss this a bit, you know, some of the old political, you know, left and right is kind of breaking down. 
but there's sort of I think there's emerging class conflicts and you know as you were saying Jason you know people might want to develop their own local community kind of um responses to things but there are sort of powerful forces ranged against them and it's almost like the dialogue has stopped um and it's it's turning into a you know a straight on class conflict and and, and one example of that that kind of arises out of my writing and George Monbiot's writing is, um, you know, for example, livestock farming or, you know, here in the UK, very, very um, bitter, divided debate about um, raising uh, livestock sheep principally in upland parts of the UK. So you get the kind of rewilders and, you know, George is the sort of champion there kind of saying, you know, this isn't producing much food. Um, you know, it's um, it's 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 destructive of nature. We need to stop doing that. And then you get, um, you know, local farm communities saying or partly they're saying, well, this is you know, this is what we've done. Um, you know, this is important to 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 local culture, but also um, I think more importantly than that, it, there's a kind of suspicion that there's a there's a kind of hidden agenda with the rewilding narrative, which is basically a corporate narrative, um, you know, buy up, you know, like put small local farmers out of business, buy up farmland, plant trees in probably a not particularly thoughtful way and say, oh, you know, we're carbon neutral or, you know, we've offset our, um, you know, our, um, uh, our, our emissions. And... I'm starting to see, I mean, I wrote a critique of Mike Berners-Lee, a professor at Lancaster University who spoke at the Groundswell Festival where I launched my book. And, he, you know, one of the things he was saying is like, well, you might think that your local, you know, very nice, low impact, um, extensive livestock system um, is is ecologically benign. But you have to look at it in the global context of marginal consumer demand. And, you know, if the meat from that is expensive, then that's displacing uh, consumers into buying meat from from the rainforest and so the way he was going with that is therefore you shouldn't be raising your benign meat whereas the way I'm going with that is well we then we need to look a lot at our systems of global consumption and and, and supply chains you know the the fault there does not lie with the small local farmer with a thoughtful benign system but that's the logic of this kind of spreadsheet brained oh I'm going to put it all in my you know, put it all in my big calculator, figure out the, you know, the carbon consequences and come up with the right answer, which is that you shouldn't be having sheep in, you know, in 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 mountainous areas of Wales. And, you know, and I think that's where that that kind of scientific quantitative knowledge becomes quite dangerous. But it's become so opposed now that, you know, if you mention rewilding in an upland UK farming community, it's like, you know, get the hell out of here sort of thing. And And I think so where I'm going with all that is, you know, I think dialogue and sort of finding common ground where we can is so, so important, particularly as we move forward into difficult times ahead. But also, I think, you know, it, these sorts of narratives are being mobilised in, in, you know, potentially quite bitter conflict. So I feel a bit torn as to how much I should step in and and sort of try and you know i mean i mean i am doing that a lot of speaking up for upland livestock farming not you know not that every aspect of it is great and farmers get pushed into you know over over commodification because of all that we know about that you know the way that will become works largely within which farming is situated but i feel that you know it's a difficult balance to strike between 
um, you know, a combative, you know, differences of of, of positioning, potential class conflict, just that kind of need to connect and that need to find, um, you know, a larger cultural or spiritual basis to go forward. So I don't necessarily have answers. It just is, you know, just two, you know, two different orientations there that I'm struggling with at the minute. Yeah, I mean, the challenge is that nobody, I don't think people are very reasonable when they feel threatened, right? So I don't know much about uh, upland sheep grazing. Uh, I'm sure it could be made more agroecological, but that that question doesn't sound like it's on the table because the the message coming from Mambia and others is that this has to just go away. And so that's a threat towards basically uh, unrooting a whole culture, um, you know, associated with with that land use practice. And so, you know, obviously they're going to, that's going to be perceived as a threat and any mention of, tell me if I'm wrong, any mention of ecological, more ecological practices, that's not even on the table. Whereas if there wasn't this polarization, there could be perhaps a more nuanced conversation about, okay, this is a larger picture. You know, we also respect your way of life. How can we work together to make this you know, more suitable for wildlife habitat while also being on preserve culture, right? Like coming with that frame, it seems like it would have been a lot more constructive than what we see now. Mm-hmm. And so you can't mm-hmm. even get these nuanced conversations, you know, to begin with. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think- I mean, there are, you know, sorry. Oh, sorry, go on, Chris. No, no, no you, you go, Sean. Oh, well, yeah, I mean, I just think, Jason, you put your finger on it with the word polarization. I mean, I mean it strikes me as, one of the absolute key things at the moment as we talked about before and dealing with pretty much any problem in our culture and it's really interesting i know paul king's north's personal journey was he was working for a massive environmental ngo um and they'd done all their spreadsheet work and decided that we needed lots of wind farms um and so he found himself facing huge local opposition to these onshore wind farms because they were you know destroying the the natural environment that people loved around them and he sort of came to the point of thinking well, hang on, how did I end up on the side of the major industrial project versus the local people trying to defend their their local nature, you know, the natural world? And that was kind of the point at which he stepped away from that and and, and led to the creation of, of the Dark Mountain project, which is a whole other story. And I think, you know, it really comes back to what what Chris was saying, that, you know, if you if you if you're into that polarization, then you do get to the point where you meet someone and you're looking for something to disagree with them about you know if you if you go to meet someone and you go to meet them at a town meeting and you know they're the ones who are advocating for the death of your way of life then Mm. whatever they say you're looking for the weak point you're looking for the thing to disagree with rather than the point of agreement and you know if we could have those conversations in a way that are like okay we're all facing an ecological crisis here you know and we have respect for traditional ways of life and all the other elements that are in the then can we come together to talk about how we might be able to move forward in a way that respects all of this like we can each put on our needs and our desires on the table and then try and come to something different from what you want and what i want which is what we collectively want once all those things are taken into account it's a totally different story and you know uh, chris i really i really feel your your tension between you know, kind of engaging on on their terms, if you like, with the with the kind of spreadsheet brain, which reminds me a bit of the um the George Lakoff, isn't it? The don't think of an elephant, 
you know, like if if someone's yeah, yeah. saying, you know, oh, you you know, you're a liar and you come back with I'm not a liar and I'm going to prove it. Then the whole conversation is about whether you're a liar or not. And all anyone remembers is, oh, maybe he's a liar. Um, and it feels a bit like that when you engage with spreadsheet brain, you're like, well, this is the answer on the spreadsheet. And you're like, well, maybe we shouldn't even be on the spreadsheet. But if we are, then, you know, this is this is completely wrong. Then the whole thing is within the frame of the spreadsheet. Um, and interestingly, I remember, Chris, when um, I think when you first read Lean Logic um, and you sent me a draft of a review you were writing for it. Um, and it's, uh, my thinking's developed a lot since then. But like, I, I think we kind of came to the point of realizing that that was happening, that you were like, well, I might be broadly on board with much of this agenda, but like I'm really focusing in on the 10 percent or whatever it is that, that I don't I don't agree with. And, and that's what the whole conversation was about. And I think yeah. what's what's really what's really important as my kind of final point on this is that, you know, spreadsheet brain doesn't work. Um, you know, it's 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 kind of what David Fleming calls green authoritarianism, which he writes a bit about, but he talks about it as a guarantee of failure um, because it's just trying to pretend that you can possibly take all the factors of a world and 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 fit it into a model and then apply that model and the world's <laughs> actually going to fit into it um and that's of course insane and, uh, and there's a there's a beautiful poem actually in in lean logic called the peasant's defiance against the advance of rationalism um which is uh which is in the rationalism entry for those who have a copy or want to look at lean logic online um and um the kind of recurring theme through that is um, all grievous error to the enlightened head, but we'll outlive the onward march of reason. Our science rings true with system, time and season. Um, and there's the kind of argument for what would it what would it look like to kind of reclaim science, you know, from this very abstracted model based thing to something that's actually in relation with with the particular and with the local and you know, on, on our Surviving the Future Conversations for Our Time programs, which Chris has been a, a guest on, um, uh, this year we had Vandana Shiva as one of our guests, and there was quite a kind of spreadsheety conversation going on. Um, and the question was put to her, you know, what one thing would you advocate, you know, in the context of all of this? Like, wh where should I start in, in, you know, trying to engage with this? And her answer was, know who grows your food or grow it yourself. You know, and it was such it was such a change from the whole sort of spreadsheety tone of everything that had gone before. But somehow to me, it, it, it rang more deeply true. You know, it came from a, a wisdom, a different kind of wisdom. And, you know, the the cultures on our planet, which have a track record of continuing to exist in relationship with reality for tens of thousands of years are not this one, you know, are not the spreadsheet brain culture. And so I think. You know, there's this strong tendency in our culture to think that anything else is is kind of naive or backward or, or you know, lost. Um, and, yeah. you know, for me, I, I started off in policy world. You know, I, I was doing a lot of work around um, carbon and think before I met David Fleming, thinking I should go off to the United Nations and try and, you know, advocate for better climate policy there. Uh, and it was meeting David that really kind of, yeah, changed my direction. So, you know, I... I'm 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 torn as well, Chris, in my engagement with you, because I really love having you to point people out on the spreadsheet brain stuff, but I, I wouldn't necessarily well, recommend it. <laughs> well, the uh, the new book is a little bit e easy. And as I think as Jason pointed out in the previous pod, I, you know, the first part is more spreadsheet brained. But then actually, I pretty much developed the, 
the argument that you've just made that you know we actually need to step outside that framing and embrace um you know a, a kind of longer range cultural wisdom um so yeah i'm i'm on board with that i mean i think you know the the, the kind of insidious thing about the, the the kind of academic stuff is that people get a bit kind of blinded with science and and, and sort of think oh you know well it's you know and, and don't necessarily understand the, the the language um and that's what you know going back again to my critique of um mike berners lee i think it, it we do so easily get directed to the more obviously quantifiable thing which is you know in 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 the kind of analysis he was doing was carbon and and you know i think it's so important to be to try and have a sort of broad critical basis for looking at, at, at some of these things you know that that what he's assuming in that model is kind of global consumerism um and um you know, a, a kind of money mediated global supply chains and then if if that's if that's your kind of deep assumption then you know then you might start trading off you know lamb in wales with beef in brazil but that you know if you don't make that assumption if you if you step out of that frame it it it, it sort of puts you in a in a completely different direction so um so yeah i, th I think that's right but you know the the difficulty i think is the way that expert knowledges get used you know some sometimes in in sort of deliberately obscuring or or you know or deliberately sort of uh, malignant ways but often not you know it's just um you know people are sort of operating within a kind of particular framing of reality and think oh you know that's that's really gonna you know that's going to be the answer you know kind of as you were discussing uh, you know the, the sort of notion that really if we just sort out the energy system and have clean energy then you know job done but you know as I think all three of us are agreed, it, it's a lot more complex and goes a lot more, more, more deep than that. So, yeah. Um, Let me ask you a couple of, of real politic questions here. Um, and they're kind of two related questions. So one from, you know, we talk about kind of the urban consumer and, you know, we're, we're all, we're all kind of rural kind of agrarian developing our homestead or, or our, you know, um, community. Uh, but from the perspective of uh, of an urban person, you know, and this is increasingly uh, also in the global south, you know, sub-Saharan Africa is urbanizing very quickly at the moment, uh, for example. Uh, you know, the concern about efficient global commodity markets for agriculture is probably pretty prescient, right? Because uh, if you're not concerned about that, that might mean that the cities will starve right uh, just getting enough food to to go to those places so from their point of view why should they take our conversation seriously so that's one uh but from the agrarian point of view you know kind of i think what we're all on board with of like you know we need to kind of carve out these alternative spaces and these alternative life ways assuming that climate ecological energy geopolitical et cetera, et cetera conditions are going to get worse and worse and governments will become increasingly desperate to let's just say pacify their 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 populations and and will therefore resort to more extreme authoritarian measures how do these alternative third spaces protect themselves from that like in a very real sense from you know just you know literally getting their land taken away or whatever it happens to be and these are kind of like two opposing questions in a way, right? Like from two perspectives. And I'm curious what you guys think about both of these in relation to each other. 
I slightly missed the, the first one. So the urban, um, the the urban situation. What, yeah. What, so if I'm a I, I'm an urban, urban person, um, uh, you know, I for many generations I haven't been, you know, even my parents or grandparents maybe haven't haven't been involved with agriculture. You know, I live in an apartment in the city. You know, having affordable food, um, you know, in this system means having efficient um commodity markets global in a global trading system um probably my interest is in perpetuating that you know that system right so i can continue getting affordable bread and and meat and and and, and whatever else i want and and so this this conversation we're having about you know oh well you know you can't you can't take kind of this you know marginal productivity spreadsheet approach because you know the culture of these, you know, these agrarian cultures are important to preserve for other more holistic regions. Why would this be a convincing argument to a person in the city who is worried about being able to feed themselves? That's the first question. Right. Well, I mean, I suppose my answer to that is that these very complex um, supply chains by which the urban person is getting fed are completely propped up on um, basically cheap energy and on kind of uh, you know ultimately a geopolitics which has you know the us essentially has underwritten um a, a kind of relatively peaceful global global trading space and we're beginning to see that breaking down in terms of you know geopolitical rivalries you know the us the eu russia china india and so on so you know i you know i think wherever we're in the world um you know there are a lot of reasons to think okay the way that commodities move and um the way that we get you know even the very basics um are, are not going to persist in the long term and that's kind of quite a frightening prospect you know wherever you are really um and i think you know if you look at it historically you know even in recent times we had much more rural populations but you know there were big cities and that you know when you look at some of the sort of stuff around say the bengal famine you know that's kind of interesting that people in the in the cities were okay looks like we lost chris looks like we lost you chris if you can hear me yeah i think you lost me for a minute there as well while i, while I was listening to chris i lost a little bit um well maybe i'll maybe i'll jump in until chris returns yeah okay um because I think, you know, as Chris said, and I think we're starting to expand on, so much of it depends on your frame, right? You know, as he was saying about Tim Berners-Lee, if, if your frame is that we've got this system and the system must continue because collapse is just unthinkable and then we we need to do what's necessary. Again, it comes back to that environmentalist favourite argument. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I think Chris is back with us. Yeah, we lost you, Chris. Are you back? Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah. Yes, now we can. Oh, okay. Sorry about that. Um, shall I shall I continue? Yeah, please. please <laughs> Where are we at? Sure, sure. Mm -hmm. So I mean, yeah, I was just saying, you know, historically the way it worked was that there was a lot of people in the countryside producing their own food. They were by and large okay because they were producing their own food. There was urban populations who were by and large okay because there weren't very many of them, and governments were worried. You know, they were the people that potentially were a threat to the government you know the w working people in a in the capital city so governments kind of took their 
needs into consideration and the people that really suffered were the sort of people caught in between you know the rural landless or you know but now we're in a situation with you know enormous global urban populations who don't have access to producing their own food and I think the geopolitics around that are pretty scary to be honest um uh, and you know we're beginning to see that how that's playing out and that's part of my sort of critique of the eco-modernists is that you know this doesn't seem to be a great moment in history you know we can talk about in the past sort of urbanization and um you know industrialization as a strategy of improving um prosperity i mean you know it that's a pretty complicated argument that's not quite as black and white as a lot of people often think but you know there's certainly elements of truth in that in the past if we're talking about the situation now it really strikes me as not a good idea to be arguing about getting people out of farming off the land into cities you know using high energy um high tech manufacturing systems to 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 produce food you know at a, a at a time when industrial workforces are already precarious and there's this kind of whole level of of you know geopolitical kind of conflict brewing up so i think you know where that goes i you know i don't know as, as sean said at the beginning you know it's not about predicting the future but my feeling is that we're going to see these systems sort of falling apart in various ways and and you know there are good models you know if you look at sort of situations like you know greece argentina um you know people having to figure this out locally because the state has kind of um you know dropped the ball basically so that is you know it's not a particularly um sort of sunny vision of how this is going to work out but i think you know my view of it is that people are going to innovate they are you know they're going to have to create new institutions new relationships um new sort of forms of access to land around food and and you know hopefully some good things will come out of that in you know in some places it's all you know it's almost a sort of truism of systems theory that you get too much kind of um um sort of ossification of an existing system and the, the part that was the dominant center kind of falls apart and then you get innovation from you know what was the periphery and you know more more flexibility in you know in in, in places that are not so um drawn into the you know to, to the old plan of power so you know and I talk about that in my first book in, in relation to what I call the supersedure state, you know, the way in which people are going to have to innovate new, you know, new food and new community systems, but also new political systems. Um, and that interests me as well. So, you know, another thing that you guys talked about in your podcast was sort of how do we decommodify, you know, how to create new types of, um, you know, how do we create sort of love and livelihood and 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 community sort of outside of these kind of economic systems that you know we've all grown up with in in you know in conditions of modernity but you know whether you're in a, a rural place threatened by um um you know government power or an urban place I, you know i think it's troubling and i think as you you know potentially there's a dangerous there's a kind of technocratic narrative that is being pushed by people both on the left and on the right that you know is is a threat i think which is going to be you know big scale government corporate um um alliances that will say well you know 
we're in such a bad situation now and you know we need to sort of use all our energetic and financial resources and you know you people you're going to have to do this that and the other you know that there there is no so i think it's important you know what what you know sean's work and your work jason and my work you know it's just important to uh, to say yes there is an alternative and and to you know create networks and and create possibilities to um you know to to um work outside of that kind of technocratic top-down state corporate narrative hmm. i mean I, I thought chris what you said there about uh some of the pretty scary um geopolitical realities of our time i mean kind of as as jason and i discussed last time it feels like not being willing to look at those things or or countenance that those things those chickens might come home to roost kind of leads to that eco-modernistic kind of viewpoint um and i mean it 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 really is scary i mean the the graph above all others you know when i engage my spreadsheet brain that just absolutely floors me is you know human population over the last thousand years and you know we've all seen this kind of exponential looking you know rocketing thing and then you look at the kind of un predictions and they're like oh well it sort of stabilizes around 10 billion and then you know it's stable and they never really talk on these timescales, but presumably is going to go on like that for centuries to come, you know, and and you just think, well, is there anywhere in that the fact that our our ecological systems globally are collapsing? Like, has anyone talked to the ecologists about how plausible that is? Because it doesn't seem so. And, you know, it's really, really, really easy, not just to understand, but to empathize with not wanting to even think about that. Um, because, I mean, things like world war one aren't even blips on that population graph you know as, as it rockets upwards you, you, you can't even really make out world war one as a mortality event um and so the idea that that graph could even conceivably sort of start plummeting in the way that it's rocketed mm. i mean you know this is this is orders of magnitude greater than epochal mort mortality events i mean it is absolutely easy to empathize with let's not even think about those possibilities and let's just grab hold of whatever allows us to keep the show on the road a bit longer. Um, and I think, again, it comes back to this polarization thing. You know, if you're in spreadsheet quantification brain mode and you've got, you know, the enemy, that person over there who disagrees with you, who you're trying to prove wrong, then of course you reach for proof. You know, the way to win that confrontation is to show that your numbers are more compelling than their numbers. And, you know, it's such a different thing from like, can we all acknowledge that we don't want to go there, but actually there might be a possibility that we go there and what on earth are we going to do? And let's, you know, pool our expertise and the things that you understand better than me and the things that I understand better than you. It just leads to a, leads to a very different place. And I, I often think of, um, I might have mentioned this when we spoke before Jason, but uh, Derek Jensen has a line about how, um, you know, if you if you threaten the um, the river, the watercourse that a tribal society depends on, well, they'll resist you with their lives because they know that their lives absolutely depend on having a, a water source. Um, but if you come from a culture where your experience is that your water comes from a tap and, you know, your food comes from a supermarket, then as Jason sort of led us in with, um those are the systems to which you feel that you owe your well-being and those are the systems that you're going to try and understand and depend upon um and one of the things that's very powerful for me about these um 
surviving the future conversations for our time kind of programs that we hold through Stirling College is that it allows people from all over the world, from all different continents to talk about these things in a way that's very carefully framed as, as non-oppositional. And, you know, we've had participants from Argentina, we've had participants from Venezuela, we've had participants from various places for whom collapse is not some hypothetical, like, oh my God, can't even think about that. It's, oh yeah, you know, that, that happens, <laughs> you know, like, you know, I, I have friends who don't get enough to eat, you know, this is, this is not a hypothetical thing for me. And it's, it's this sort of time travel experience of, you know, people looking into their own past and going, oh yeah, I remember when I thought about it, like you guys in your comfortable little offices talking about the possibility of collapse. Um, and the one thing that comes through again and again, and that I think speaks to your question, Jason, about those two kind of, those two perspectives and, and what it makes sense to say to them both, is that looking for our security in money, which is kind of what I was taught to do by my culture growing up, just ain't a good idea. <laughs> um, you know, thinking that the way you have security is owning a home and having a pension and this kind of stuff. Um, an awful lot of people around the world, more and more people around the world are qualified to tell us how unreliable that is, um, you know, how that can evaporate. Um, and that the far more reliable places to look for our security are the natural world, you know, the soil, ecology, and relationships. Um, you know, actual relationships with people who care about each other and, and fundamentally care about each other's well-being, not not because they're being paid to do so. And so, you know, when I think we 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 step into that frame, you know, look at the world through that lens, then we get into your questions about, well, fine, but I know loads of people who are trying to do wonderful things along those lines and they're all getting squashed by, you know, capitalism or by government or um and for me the the most compelling um approach personally is kind of building in the cracks you know it seems to me that if we're you know we're constantly sold this story that the the mainstream is just too big and too powerful and we can't possibly overthrow it and we just have to kind of you know live in the shadows and i think it looks very different if we look at it as actually no there's this huge monolithic thing which is teetering um you know which is not going to be able to keep itself going over the long term and so what we need to do is is divorce our dependencies from that system as much as possible and of course it's not only not going to continue it's also killing everything <laughs> so you know if we're going to have a future we need to we need to figure out how to get away from it anyway and the more that we can make that not our system but you know the ecocidal system the more it's kind of widening cracks become something that we can actually welcome because suddenly it's not the case that you know there's this huge powerful centralized force which is going to come and squat us because they've got bigger things to worry about the whole thing's falling about around their ears the last thing they want to be doing is going out and harassing small farmers or whatever it is um and so that principle of kind of growing not just the future but the present we want to live in in those cracks you know and and allowing that as those cracks widen we actually become become more resilient and when i talk to kind of indigenous allies um you know who are often working in direct resistance to the to the mainstream dominant culture and systems they sort of laugh at the idea that we should have you know property rights and security they're like we haven't had those for centuries now 
um, you know, what you what you do is you find somewhere where you can be in a good way for now. Mm-hmm. Um, and you hope that you're able to sustain that and you do everything that you can and you make it as hard as possible to get crushed. Um, but in so doing, not only do you find a deeper security than money because you're basing it in, in the land and in your people, um, but also you get to live a life that you wholeheartedly believe in. Mm-hmm. And there just there just ain't anything money can buy that's that's worth more than that. Um and I see we've I see we've lost Chris, which is a bit of a shame, but I imagine he'll rejoin us um yeah. if he's able yeah. to. Yeah, no, I, I really like that framing. Um and I, I guess I would just add there that finding, you know, space in these cracks doesn't just happen on kind of the, the geographic outspurts, like say away from the cities, they often can happen from inside the cities themselves, oftentimes in the inner cities that, that have also been neglected in especially the United States with the sprawling culture. Um, you know, I, I can think of, you know, a couple of examples like urban agriculture in Detroit or Cooperation Jackson in Jackson, Mississippi, where they're, you know, basically trying to, you know, carve out, you know, access for themselves, you know, uh, through land trusts to get access to urban agriculture thinking about, you know, a conversation we had with a fellow community organizer in Oakland, um, who, who is also one of the things he's focused on is urban agriculture. And so I just, that's one thing to note is that this isn't just finding the cracks. If you happen to be rural or you get access to rural, then, then you can engage in this, you know, this kind of, uh, this kind of thing. It, it can happen wherever you are. It can certainly happen in the suburbs too, for hopefully obvious reasons with regards to space for growing things. And so um, starting where you are, I think, uh, and not where you ideally would want to be, just, you know, starting where you are is, 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 is a good approach. You know, what, who are your friends? What, what, what resources do you have access to? Um, you know, how can you build out from there? Is, and, is, and also let's emphasize that access is not necessarily the ability to buy land. Um, Because again, that's what we've been trained in, right? Like it's all about money. Money's where we should look. Like there might be land that's just not being actively used. Who knows who owns it? But like you know, maybe maybe it can be occupied. I've I've spent a lot of time around squatting culture, Um, and you know, it can be like taking a building that's not in use, um, finding out what the background is. So not to limit ourselves to the the framings of money. Um, I mean, Carly from Corporation Jackson was one of our guests on the Surviving the Future course last year. Um, and, you know, incredible kind of not just not just a, a community who face incredible um, prejudice in their region um, coming together to uh, develop what they need and, and operate in mutual aid, but also really a, a quite revolutionary political program about like, how do we how do we open up more space for that? So, yeah, just really an encouragement, you know, whatever it looks like to not well, again, you know, don't don't accept the dominant frame. Don't think that the only way to do things is is the way the way that it's um, legally laid out for you to do. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, one I, I do I do want to give I, I do want to give the conversation uh, that you pose, Sean, is due of of exploring kind of the spiritual existential uh dimensions of all of this uh before we move on to that part of the conversation um chris do you want to add anything uh kind of relevant yeah, to what um, we're talking about 
Yeah, sorry, I dropped out again. I don't know my my uh, my connection is obviously uh, not not wanting to play along. Um, yeah, there there were a couple of things there. I mean, I agree. Um, uh, yeah, with w what I heard Sean saying, and I think really important to step out of these oppositional political frameworks, which I think is easy to try to achieve something locally. So I think things like nonviolent communication and or you know sort of citizens assemblies that groups like XR have been experimenting with and and you know sort of trying to get to people's needs rather than um you know trying to sort of win a narrative i think are really important in in these settings but then building on from there i think you know i'm interested in this whole idea of decommodification and moving away from money and what that looks like in a in a community that's generating its livelihood and i mean maybe if i could just share an example of that that I've been struggling with, you know, we live basically off grid on a little holding with a, you know, kind of a sort of, well, it's a long complex story, but essentially an intentional community here. But, but I'm the guy that sort of is responsible for the woodland. So rather than, you know, people are used to kind of pressing a button and having heat, whereas here, you know, if you want to heat your house in the winter, it starts with a, a standing tree and you kind of somehow have to get from the standing tree to um you know a a sort of cut stacked um split wood pile and you know i think the whole question of building commons is really interesting and i think that you know we you know sort of on the right people are like oh something collective that's terrible you know on the left commons oh it's great you know what a, what a lovely way of organizing but actually it's quite complicated sort of there, there's a I mean, I like Eve Rodsky's written this book, which is very much about gender relationships in, you know, in a traditional sort of household about who bears the mental load. And, you know, men are not very good at this. It's like, you know, I'll go and do the shopping today. Well, that's great. But who is actually thinking about, you know, how to, you know, what, what does the household need? Who is, you know, who's going to be here tonight? You know, what do the kids need? You know, what sort of foods do they like? You know, so it's sort of it's not just it's partly about who's doing the work but it's about who's carrying this whole task um and i think if you just kind of assume that oh well you know it'll come together somebody will you know will it'll, it'll get fixed it it kind of doesn't you know and that's where when you look at kind of agricultural commons historically they're often very very cleverly organized um you know to make sure that um things work and that and that you know uh and that people pull their weight um but it's hard to do that you know the bigger you know the bigger and bigger scale you know uh, and i mean I, I sort of get into trouble with people on the left for this in arguing for a kind of household or or small scale based way of doing it you know it gets harder and harder the bigger the scale so i think i you know i'm completely on board with the idea of yeah you know let's decommodify this and not just assume you can heat your house by pressing a button and then paying a bill to the you know to the gas company or whatever but then how you actually organize that um requires a lot of work a lot of 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 kind of human relationship work um and it's not always easy and and you know people say well that's because we've grown up in this kind of individualistic capitalist society which is true to some extent but you know you you look at other societies historically indigenous societies or you know pre-modern agrarian societies and and you know they too have put a lot of work into figuring out how to make these relationships work so i'm interested i mean you know we're not going to answer that in this conversation today but i'm interested in how 
going forward as we develop um you know more local communities or different types of politics more agrarian communities you know not to just assume that that's going to be easy or that you know that that building the relationships will take care of itself you know that that is the you know that the, there's a big future work involved in doing that so yeah just wanted to raise that point basically john do you want to talk a bit about the happy pig and how you guys are navigating that yeah, I mean, um, what really struck me about that, Chris, is like how often I just decide not to heat my space. You know, how often I'm just like, you know what, I'm just going to I'm just going to work from bed um, and maybe I'll indulge in a hot water bottle. But actually, like being a bit cold feels a lot less hassle than, as you say, everything that's involved in turning a standing tree into heat. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, that's uh, that. Say, say again. Sorry, I was going to say that's true, but I guess there's always, you know, that that's just one example where, you know, I, I think I think where you're coming from is a good place, which is, oh, you know, to what extent do we not need to do that, I think is always a good starting point. But ultimately, there are still things that have oh, to be organised and think, done. You know. I just think in terms of the framing thing we were talking about earlier, like it's so striking to me. I remember when I was doing a lot of research on kind of oil depletion. Um, and I was getting really confused because I, I, I'd look up sort of oil supply graphs and projections and I'd look up oil demand graphs and projections and they were the same graphs. And I think oh, this is weird. And then I'd realize, oh, of course they are, because the, the assumption is, well, this is what's going to happen with demand. So how do we get supply to, to meet it? I thought, God, that's so backwards. You know, it's not like how do we how do we get demand down to something as reasonable as possible? And then, OK, we're going to need to go and find that much energy. The frame is always like, well, we predict that we're going to create this amount of demand. And so we have to find a, a solution for finding the supply. And I do I do think that that kind of with my. Slightly silly uh, heating example, but it, I do think it's a really important point that um, and it's one that David Fleming makes, actually, about, you know, we, we start by figuring out what we really need um, and then we then we figure out um how locally we can get it and only then do we think about well maybe we need some kind of globalized system if we're if we're gonna you know need something beyond that but i think i mean i'm actually a bit surprised by what you said about you know people on the right thinking oh god they're talking of something collective that's so terrible um i mean as you know i i, I don't really find left and right very useful concepts at all but certainly some people i know who identify as right wing um see themselves as, as as much more kind of grounded in in communal responses um and the left wing tends to be a lot more kind of ah but as i say i don't want to get into right and left but i was surprised yeah, to hear that there's but a i think yeah libertarian more yeah yeah usually religious um, community right but but what yeah, i would say is that you're you're absolutely right that you know and and when i talk about kind of um, philosophical and spiritual perspectives I think absolutely the cultural is in there too and in fact that's exactly why when I decided uh, what about oh, 10 years ago now um, a bit more than that to kind of move away from the kind of policy work and I was like well okay I, actually I can't see any way that um, any particularly useful policies are going to get through our politics and so if um there needs to be some kind of wider cultural change before the policy work actually feels a particularly meaningful place for me to be. And it was around that time that David Fleming died like back in 2010. And then I read the manuscript for Lean Logic and was like, oh, my, that's exactly what this is about. It's, you know, it's fundamentally not a work so much about the, the kind of ecological and economic stuff is kind of the backdrop. But fundamentally, this is about culture. 
fundamentally this is about what what does it mean to live in a way that yeah that makes sense in all the ways that we're talking about and you know coming to the um the kind of more spiritual side of it that you were asking about jason like you know for me the the starting point if you if you like the the kind of the meaning of life if you want um is you know, telling a story with your days that you're proud to tell you know and and that will look really different for different people it might be like i raised a beautiful daughter it might be i served my country it might be like i was locked in a prison cell for 30 years but they never broke me you know whatever but like a story that to you feels deeply true and important and you know that you lived for that like to me that 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 makes sense you know a, a path that is neither kind of in denial or in despair um and for those of us who are kind of moved to engaging with the these terrifying geopolitical realities of this time that's the question for me what does it look like to walk a path that is neither based in denial or despair um because i i love the line you know to be truly radical is to make hope possible not despair convincing and i i, I profoundly believe that there is nothing about these terrifying times that prevents us from telling a story with our lives that we're proud to tell um and so yeah maybe chris i know um you know maybe it'd be an interesting thing to talk a bit about where you see perhaps differences in the kind of your small farm future kind of outlook on on how cultures might develop and and david fleming's kind of lean logic which is something that obviously i know very well and i'm, I'm quite impressed by mm. um and you know but like maybe we can try and do it in a way that isn't just focused on you know the 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 ten percent we disagree on um you know maybe we can try and maybe we can try and well yeah <laughs> start start from our agreements and build out yeah well there's there is a sort of backstory in terms of um you know uh, my engagement with Sean and David Fleming and writing a review of his book and being um you know which was quite a few years ago now and and being kind of like yeah in many ways sort of bowled over by the brilliance of David Fleming's thinking but also you know going back to that we were discussing earlier oh well disagreeing with that and in some ways being triggered um by certain ways of thinking which you know we, we've talked about the political left and right and I think you know agree with you Sean that it's uh, not a particularly useful framing um and I kind of would I would subscribe to I would I would say that now much more strongly than I would a few years ago when I was reading Lean Logic and being mm. a little bit triggered by some of I mean I I reread the review I wrote of it um which interestingly you know I interacted with you about that review because I felt quite critical of aspects of his writing and it was I mean again that was an interesting thing in terms of looking for commonality but the 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 conversation I had with you you know I I I I I sort of wanted to sort of find some common ground with you and with him on it. And actually the conversation I had with you helped me find common ground more. And as time has gone on, I've I've sort of come to see more and more of his, you know, I, I think he, you know, he he has had quite a profound influence on my thinking, actually, that's kind of quietly insinuated it, it, it itself um in over, you know, over sort of subsequent years. Um and yeah, I've, I, you know, I mean, ironically, I, you know, my my writing, you know, you know I, I guess I tended to sort of cast myself more, you know, sit within, you know, left wing or progressive thought. And then ironically, you know, my my book has has been sort of torn to shreds by kind of various left wing Marxist uh, critics, sort of, sort of 
saying the similar thing you know so, so there's kind of a sort of interesting interesting trajectory there and i think sort of interesting similarities where you know that there are certain words i think you were talking about that again with jason in your previous podcast you know you, you only have to say something like climate change and people you know in yeah. certain circles will say oh well you know you must be a, a left winger one of them. you know so, yeah exactly so you're not one of us but, yeah exactly but I think, you know, it's interesting, um, I, you, you, this whole issue of culture and, and, and spirituality, um, you know, is, and, um, and talking as well. You know, we did a podcast on doom or optimism with um, Dougald Hine, you know, which was interesting. And his view, uh, uh, along with other people, you know, people like um, Eugene McCarricker's book, you know, is basically arguing the whole you know on the left people criticize capitalism but in many ways it's the whole culture of modernity is deeply problematic in in many ways and and it and, it, and it's a kind of cultural shift that we need and i suppose it's interesting what you were saying i agree with what you were saying a few minutes ago about the need to i can't remember how you phrased it you phrased it very nicely in terms of telling a story about your life that that that, that kind of makes sense but yeah yeah but one of the problems with that is that we have to fit our individual story into a bigger cultural story and one of and, and you know oh no just as he was getting to the crowning crowning yeah. moment of his conversation oh Chris, yeah. you're back you're yeah you said one of the one of the problems oh, is fitting that within the wider cultural story and then we lost you right yeah yeah sorry the internet just isn't playing ball today the internet am, I, am i with you again yes this, this is like you know, the apex we're, we're gonna do it anyway <laughs> right um yeah you know is 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 fitting that individual narrative that makes sense into a bigger cultural narrative that makes sense and some of our cultural narratives are very much about you know this nation is better than that nation or it's you know progress you know we're we're, we're sort of moving towards a future of greater prosperity and greater wealth and you know those are the narratives i think we need to kind of step outside but so we need to try and build new cultural narratives which are not something you can do overnight you know you can't you know you can't just sort of invent a religion or invent a culture that um you know that that that, that does that um and the difficulty we have is that you know we've inherited these um you know more local cultures and traditions well maybe not maybe that's a whole other route to go down but you know the, the some you know, I, I do firmly believe that we can actually draw on older religious spiritual and philosophical you know pre-modern traditions but not you know we can't just kind of bolt them on to where we are now and say oh well you know the last few hundred years was a disaster you know let's go back to um Aristotle or uh, you know or, or or whatever so I think there are you know there are difficulties there and 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 because you know the world there's so much fragmentation and and and, and sort of having to kind of reinvent where we are out of this kind of global economic moment um you know I think those narratives can't be too you know it, uh, I, I mean, you know, I like your stuff, Jason, the, the sort of cosmo-localism. It has to be local. It has to make sense, you know, in place, um, be grounded, but it can't be too exclusive and closed. And I think, you know, there are dangers with um, closure around culture. And, and looking back at my review, that one of my worries 
about some of David Fleming's arguments about culture, but I think, you know, I'm equally you could you know i can see that's not that that you know I, I certainly i'm not arguing that he was trying to articulate a closed vision of culture because he certainly wasn't you know he was um, very much um trying to you know, working in this space of like how do we develop a culture that that is that is you know generates hope and generates meaning out out of the ashes so you know i can see that more clearly now than i than i did then but i still you know uh, again it's one of those tricky you know it, it's hard to find an answer you know you can't just kind of pull a culture sort of off the shelf or you know sort of create one anew overnight so you know that I think is going to be a challenge as um, you know we were talking earlier about you know urbanism and the breakdown of that people on the move people trying to you know figure out how the hell to um, you know to, to 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 sort of get get a livelihood going and whilst doing that, sort of, you know, having to jettison a lot of old cultural ideas and and and, and find new ones, you know, it's um it's a tall order. But I do think culture and spirituality ultimately are at the root of all this. That's what we've got to get right somehow. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I think I might have mentioned Jason last time as well. This line I love from Mark Mark Boyle, my friend, who who said, um, you know, we're always told to stop romanticizing the past um and you know as someone who's who's got his hands dirty in the blood and muck of that you know i'd agree with that completely but i think we need to be far more careful of romanticizing the future um and i think there's such a a big challenge that all of us face in our work is that everything we talk about is often held up against star trek you know <laughs> like it's like well that sounds good but i think i preferred star trek actually you know um you know that that vision feels really real to people um and so you know it's it's understandable but you know the the problem with a lot of the visions of the future that held up is that they're just they just ain't gonna happen <laughs> you know there's a whole lot of whole lot of reasons why if we're gonna get there we need to we need to radically change direction from our current path and you know i i uh, I really respect what you just said, actually, Chris, about about the kind of shifting relationship. Um, I'm sure not just with David Fleming's work, but like that ability to kind of shift your kind of feeling towards something, I think is is so a critical cultural skill, um, you know, because that's that's essentially the work of undoing this kind of us and them polarization, isn't it? To, to be like, OK, actually, they did use a couple of trigger trigger words, but, you know, maybe I can find the place where I agree and maybe I can. Actually, it's something I encounter a lot um, on the Surviving the Future program because, you know, we talk a lot about David Fleming's work and we've got people from many different cultures around the world participating. Um, and quite often there's something there that, that they find triggering or concerning. And I think, you know, partly that's a product of, of David's way of writing where he'll often sort of say, well, obviously, we all agree with this, blah, 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 blah. And then, well, that's completely wrong. And actually, what we should be saying is the other. Um, and if you take the bit where he says, well, obviously, we all agree with this at the start out of context, <laughs> it can sound like he's saying the opposite of what he's saying when he's actually, you know, articulating a problem by saying this is where we want to go. But actually, it faces this problem can sound like a critique of where we want to go um, rather than engaging, engaging with the challenges. Um, and of course, when we're in a culture that that really emphasizes this kind of um, one upmanship, polarization, you know, point and laugh at the idiots on the other side type of type of approach, then, as I say, it's a, it's a really critical skill to be able to um, step past that um, and, and sort of find that common ground. And, 
there's actually Carly Akuno from Cooperation Jackson. Um, I don't think he was the first one to say this, but he said a line that's really stuck with me in terms of building these new cultural stories and perspectives. Um, I say I'm not sure it's his line. I don't think it is. But he said it's far easier to act your way into new ways of thinking than to think your way into new ways of acting. Mm. Um, and that that I think is 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 a real touchstone in the work of of creating the new cultures that we desperately need is you know we we make the path by walking it and we can only walk from where we are now you know we can't just think ourselves into being a different person with a different understanding of the universe um and that's why in many ways for me the the critical thing you know when we get into conversations about oh i don't know like environmentalists often kind of feel like they're shaming everybody you know like oh well you you know you shouldn't be flying and you shouldn't be eating bacon and you shouldn't be this and you shouldn't be that um and that comes from their understanding of the consequences um and the fact that we probably don't want the consequences but it it often comes across as just being a bit miserable and telling everyone what to do um and for me what's far more important is that people are living authentically actually because i think the 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 big problem in our world as i see it the biggest problem is that we've got a culture globally you know if you can talk about a global culture which i think it certainly has some features which is probably the most powerful machine that's ever been for alienating people from their spirit you know just convincing people through some kind of economic pressure that they should ignore how unhappy they are with the way that they're living and just plod on um and um it was howard Furman who said don't ask what the world needs ask what makes you come alive because what the world needs is people who've come alive and so for me like if someone the the thing the, the big problem that we face is that we're we're sort of consuming the world in order to sustain ways of life that are actually pretty miserable for most people, which seems like the absolute worst of both worlds. You know, I would, I, if someone said to me, you know, I am wholeheartedly at peace with, you know, flying to Bali for two weeks to go on holiday, I'd be like, great, then I totally support you in doing that. But what I usually find is someone actually isn't wholeheartedly at peace with it, but they don't want to think about it and it's all too complicated and difficult and they're going to do it anyway and they're not even going to fully enjoy it because they feel kind of guilty for it. Um, and so, you know, what I really would advocate is is the work of integrating ourselves, um, you know, letting the part of us that wants that thing talk to the part of us that doesn't want the consequences of that thing. <laughs> mm. um, and in my experience, when we have that conversation, we, we get to an answer. Um, you know, like for me, the thing I'd probably most love to see in the world is the Great Redwoods in California. Um, and my my ex-girlfriend is from that part of the world, from St. Louis Obispo, and she really wanted me to go there and meet her family. And I reflected on that and thought, you know what? That would make me unhappy. Like to feel based on my current understanding that I'd personally contributed to the likely death of those great beings by just feeling like I had the right to go and meet them in person actually wouldn't make me happy and you know I I'm I'm a happier person for not going because I've rid myself of that cognitive dissonance and I've told a story that I'm proud to tell with my time and but I'm not saying nobody should fly I'm saying everyone should do that work of finding the path that makes them truly happy and you know in my experience if you know, I loved flying to Bali every every summer. 
but then the more I became aware of the environmental impacts of that um, and came at that not from the point of some bloody environmentalist telling me I shouldn't do this, but rather like, well, I also would like us to have a future on this planet. Um, then over time, in my experience, I've come to the point where I think, well, actually, deep down, I don't really want that thing anymore because the thing and the consequences of the thing can't really be separated. Um, and so that's for me where we do the work of the kind of spiritual work, if you like, but the work of creating a new culture is when we listen to everything that we hear for the truth in it rather than the thing we can disagree with and then do the work of integrating that truth into our own path so that it feels like one we can truly live wholeheartedly and with joy. Um, and then then we're acting our way into a new way of thinking. And, you know, the more the more we live that that authentic path, in my experience, the more it tends to have good effects for the 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 beings all around us, the people and the cultures and the non the more than human world. Um, so, yeah, that's that's where I would come from on the spiritual cultural thing. And unfortunately, um, I've so offended Chris that in his polarized, <laughs> blinkered way of being, he just couldn't even stand to be on a call with me anymore. And he's just hung up, which frankly is disgusting. He's burning lean logic right now. <laughs> yeah, he's gone to Sweden specifically for their freedom of speech laws. So they he's going to fly it to Bali and then burn it. <laughs> <laughs> On a private <laughs> Yeah. Well, this is, uh, there's a lot of, a lot of thoughts that have come to my mind here. I mean, a couple, I mean, for me, the origin of doomer optimism was always kind of a twofold uh, interpretation. One was what you had said earlier about um, not being naive, uh, but also avoiding despair. You know, that's reflected in doomer optimism. But another part of it is existential, right? I mean, there's kind of this, um, it's analogous, the cultural situation we're in of like potential death of, 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 of our larger cultures uh, and feeling despair about that. And, you know, the inevitable death of our own organism you know, our own being and feeling despair about that. And that's a, you know, that's a despair that, you know, humans, you know, have, have had to deal with, you know, for, for all time, uh, come to terms with in their own ways. And some, some do it better than others. And some cultures, uh, assist with that process of coming to terms with death, um, and allowing that to vivify your presence and the, just you know, the majesty of what is arising right now, uh, you know, some cultures have done that better than others. And, I, and I, it seems like, you know, a big part of what we're talking about here on a cultural level, you know, it starts at an, it, it starts by coming to terms with our own deaths, you know, which, which mm -hmm. are inevitable, you know, whether it's in 20 years or 50 years, in the grand scheme of things, does it really matter? What what really matters when I think in those terms is what is arising right now, and what is arising right now is you know the nature that I see around me, my relationships, um, and from there it seems that's that's where culture can be generated. And the other thing that came to my mind is that it seems like oftentimes culture as a concept is only really understood in retrospect or from the outside. Right. When you're culturing, just like when you're commenting, when you're culturing, it doesn't it's not a self-conscious thing. It's all the little things you're doing to to make do, to survive, to, you know, manage your relationships uh, around shared resources. Um, 
it's very much in the moment, in the present. And sometimes, you know, as traditions develop, it starts becoming a little more self-aware. But that's that to me seems like when we're trying to create, we're talking about trying to create a new culture, you know, we're trying to find new ways to come to terms with our own mortality and new ways to, or old ways to come to terms with our own mortality and, and how to relate to each other, uh, whatever, you know, whatever situation, situation we have to be in, we happen to be in. Um, yeah, and so that, that's not really a culture-wide prescription other than like kind of be in the moment and try and do the best you can, but that seems to be the way forward. Um, well, I, I could definitely respond to that, but Chris, are you are you back with us or you seem to be frozen still? Uh, maybe I'll press on. But he's frozen still. Um, well, yeah, I mean, it's interesting how you say that as 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 things become more sort of encoded and traditional, they can become more self-aware. I mean, of course, the flip side is they can also become more divorced, you know, divorced from actual lived experience and more right. kind and of ossified. Sometimes divorced because it becomes more self-aware. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but but absolutely. I mean, with regard to death, I mean, we actually Stephen Jenkinson, who talks a lot about um, death, was one of our guests on on this year's Deeper Dive. Um, and one of the things that really strikes me about death is that as with just about everything else in the culture I grew up in, we're obsessed with it on an individual scale. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Everything's about me sean and like how it affects me and what it what it has to do with me um and you know i'm really interested in how a lot of indigenous cultures tend to look at things more at a, a kind of ecosystem scale like in the same sense of you know if you if you if you catch a salmon you take on responsibility for the well-being of that of that community of salmon yeah. um and similarly like how how is my death going to affect the well-being of the ecosystems on which i depend yeah. Um, and actually, what I'd love to do, and I don't know whether this is the moment you tell me, Jason, but is actually read the Lean Logic entry on death, which is a very short one. Um, right. But it, it just speaks to that very beautifully. And is this a good moment to do that? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Okay. So this is um, yeah from Lean Logic, which is available completely free at leanlogic.online, by the way. So although that sounds like an advert, I'm not selling anything. Um, death. The means by which an ecosystem keeps itself alive, selects its fittest, controls its scale, gives peace to the tormented, enables young life, and accumulates a grammar of inherited meaning as generations change places. A natural system lies in tension between life and death. Death is as important to it as life. A lot of death is a sign of a healthy, large population. Too much death is a sign that it is in danger. It is not coping. Its terms of coexistence with its habitat are breaking down. Too little death is a sign of the population exploding to levels which will destroy it and the ecology which supports it. No death means that the system itself is already dead. The reduction of life to an icon, the assertion that life is human life, is sacred, disconnects the mind from the ecosystem to which it belongs. It is a fertile error. Beneath the exaggerated regard for life lies an impatience with, a disdain for, the actual processes that sustain the ecology that sustains us. Expressing faith in the sanctity of human life is a license in a series of little, well-intentioned, self-evident steps 
to kill the ecology that supports it. The large-scale system, relying on its size and technology, and making an enemy of death, which should be its friend, joins a battle which it cannot win. In systems thinking, death is sacred. Yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot there. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, that's all culture building too, you know, as we explore this stuff around how we conceive of these things. And as you say, most critically, how we live in relation to them. Yeah. One thing I wanted to add, kind of tangential, you know, I, I, I think, you know, thinking in terms of being part of an ecosystem is one way to cope with death. Another is to be, it's a thing in terms of ancestors. Um, you know, I, there, there are many cultures that thought more in terms of cyclical thinking rather than linear thinking in terms of, mm -hmm. you know, this, whether it's the spirit or soul, um, however you, you conceptualize it, of, of kind of being connected to your ancestors and to your descendants in a, in a very profound way where, you know, death is a bit, becomes a kind of a relative thing, um, not an absolute thing. Um, anyway, that's just a stray thought. Um, Chris, we thought you had uh, flown off to Bali and burned Lean Logic. <laughs> yeah, sorry, sorry if I gave that impression. Yeah, I, 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 uh, I've been wrestling with various, um, you know, um, modems and things here, trying to, trying to reconnect. So I did, I did catch some of your conversation, but not all of it. Um, so. But I definitely didn't fly to Bali. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Was was there um, anything that you caught that you wanted to come in on, Chris? Or should we? Well, yeah. No, I mean, I think you know a lot of a lot of agreement there with what I I heard, and and yeah, very much liked um, you know the the David's definition of death there, and and I think yeah, again, one of the sadnesses of modern culture and its um and its fixation on progress is the way that we so often scorn ancestors, I think, rather than um you know engage with them. I mean, it can be uh, I, I like David Graeber and Marshall Salin's book on kingship is quite funny where they talk about the problem of being a king is that there's all these dead kings and you have to sort of compete with them and do do better than them. so I, I think you know it's like, getting the right relationship with ancestors where we honor them but you know maybe not too much you know <laughs> but um <laughs> but yeah i mean i think the the um you know culture is an interesting one i think people often tend to think of it as this fixed thing or tradition as this kind of dead weight and it's so important that it's not you know it's not a fixed thing and tradition is not you know is is not you know to be a traditionalist to insist that everything is done in this certain way is not what it's about you know culture is a kind of um it's a field of action and i and i liked the 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 quotation that that you said earlier sean about um thinking your uh, sorry acting your way into into new thinking um and i think you know one of the problems with you know when we were talking about academia earlier or the you know the weight of modern culture is that it, there, there is a lot of institutional ossification which makes it hard to come alive exactly in the way that you were saying and 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 to sort of rethink your position so i think trying to create spaces outside of you know these is these established sort of 
mighty institutions is important. And, you know, the only thing I'd say there, you know, in relation to my examples like commoning or, or whatever, you know, there's a lot of, um, there is potential for burnout, I think, and there is potential for people to think, oh, well, you know, we're doing this new, really cool sort of community collective thing um, and, uh, and, and it's bound to be great. And then actually finding that, you know, relationships, human relationships are, are always or, you know, very often difficult sort of forgiving ourselves to some extent or or, or sort of being uh, open to the difficulties involved and not you know not sweeping those difficulties under the carpet and just sort of saying oh well you know we're pioneering this new great thing you know pioneering new things is difficult you know and 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 you know there's um <laughs> you know but again we can go back to you know you can see that through the ages you can see the way that you know great religious and political traditions have wrestled with all of the same issues that we're wrestling with with now you know um and and sort of find inspiration and and, and solace for that. so yeah you know um yeah just sort of finding our way out of what's um yeah you know i mean that death quotation was great you know sort of um sort of seeking death in the right ways and seeking renewal out of death in the right way and, and 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 sort of reckoning with all the complexity of that i think is um is where we've got to be but but you know and, and part of that is is um recognizing the death of um, modern culture and a lot of you know a lot of um political and economic and cultural traditions that have sort of got us got us where we are and it's time to yeah, I mean, I think Dougald Hind, it's not him that came up with the term, but, you know, hospicing modernity, you know, sort of giving it a giving it a decent send off and, and then moving on to the new is is sort of what we need. Vanessa Andriotti, right. I think. Right. Yes. Yes, yeah. that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, all good stuff. I think we're, you know, we're 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 sort of very much on the same page with this. Um but uh, and as you're saying, you know, everyone has their skills and their interests to 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 bring to it. It's it's um it's a matter of, of doing that and finding the connections, really. Yeah. Different things bring different people alive, fortunately. <laughs> yeah. Good thing complex ecosystems and complex relational systems are more robust. <laughs> Usually. If, <laughs> if they don't if, if, if they don't cause more polarization. And that's that's the process. Uh, yeah, only it was so easy to just wrap everything up in a nice little nutshell, eh? <laughs> and be like, that's the one principle that guides them all. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, we need to uh, wrap soon, but um, any any last thoughts? Any anything that we didn't explore in this conversation that that we want to touch on before we before we wrap up? Um, I, I was quite interested by Chris just mentioning burnout there, um, because that's definitely been a big part of my story. Um, uh, some of your listeners probably know I was involved, as was Chris indeed, with the Ecological Land Cooperative. And, um, you know, back in the day, I moved on to the first site of the co-op and kind of went there, I think, with quite a spreadsheet brain. Like, I think my spreadsheet brain had decided that being a small scale grower was just the the right thing you know along with analysis that anyone who's read chris's books is probably well familiar with um and so i decided i'd better do that then um and you know there's a lot to be said about as chris says the human relationships and all the practicalities but basically 
Um, I think I was very much asking what the world needed rather than what made me come alive. Mm. Um, and I remember having a conversation with my friend Rob Hopkins around that time when he said, uh, I sort of called him for some advice and he said, well, everything you're saying makes a lot of sense, Sean, but the way you say it, it doesn't sound a lot of fun. And, you know, if it's if it's not fun, it's not really sustainable. Mm. Um, and that's really that's really stuck with me as evidenced by the fact that here I am saying it all these years later. Um, and and I did really burn myself out kind of trying to do what I felt I should do. Um, and I think, you know, for me, that's a big part of the beauty of kind of telling a story where we, we, we want to tell with our lives, you know, that we're that we're really deeply aligned with and that, that we're not ignoring any small voices in ourselves that are saying, you know, eh, what about this? Or eh, I'm not really happy or oh, no, no, don't listen to that. You know, I think if we if we can heed all those little voices and again, do the work of integrating that into ourselves um, and maybe combine that with the 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 holy grail of kind of non-attachment to outcomes, you know, working, working for outcomes, but without requiring that they come to pass in the way that we hope. Um, but just believing that doing the best we know and the thing that most, most makes us come alive is worthwhile, regardless of whether it succeeds. doesn't mean it doesn't hurt when it doesn't, but at the same time, it's, it's still worthwhile. To me, that's, that's kind of been the antidote to burnout. Um, you know, if I'm doing something that I, really with everything I know at all levels of myself believe in and I know that it might not work out as I hope but by god it's worth the effort because isn't this isn't this beautiful like I'm really just creating something here that I I want to create then it, it doesn't feel like burnout anymore it doesn't feel like oh god I just have to keep going it feels like well this is what I want to do with my days and and I think that's been like my big learning of the last decade probably is how to do things with my time that allow me to feel like each day well i'm doing what i believe in with my days doesn't mean it's always easy or fun i remember indexing lean logic as one of the most mind-numbingly tedious tasks i've ever undertaken in my life but it absolutely felt like part of the story i wanted to tell i absolutely wanted that book in the world and i wanted to honor david's memory and i you know i had a why for the for the tedious how um and so i, I think that's kind of yeah maybe where where i would sort of pull it to a close is just finding finding that path that's yours to walk um and then for me you know burnout isn't so much of a thing and i guess i'd add that for me the big key to being able to do that has been minimizing my dependence on money you know because one of the big ways that we lose our ability to do that is having to sell our time to you know pay the rent or pay the bills or whatever um and again the the real beauty of um building our lives more around relationships, you know, staying with family or in a squat or in an activist place or, you know, whatever it may be. Like there are ways of having places to exist that aren't financial, they're relational. Um, and my experience has been the more that I've learned to do that, the more I've learned a new culture. You know, I was kind of raised in, in finance culture, if you like. Um, and it was a lot of hard work learning how to do that. And there are definitely times when I thought, oh God, shall I just take an airbnb instead of staying with this person when i go and give this talk because it's just so much social effort and all of that but but that work of learning to make my life more relational felt like my work in a way that working for money never did and the more i do it the less money i need so the less i need to earn money and actually then as it's turned out in my life you know writing and talking and teaching around that has ended up bringing in 
not very much money by normal standards, but enough that I don't have to then go and sell my time independently. So, um, yeah, bring it, bring all that kind of spirituality down to the practical. Like that's been my kind of inoculation against burnout, which, which left me absolutely broken, you know, at a point where I, I was sleeping three hours a night and just absolutely not functioning. Um, and now I'm living a life that I love, even in a context of what I see as at this point, inevitable unfolding collapse. Um, and that's, you know, if that's not doom or optimism, I don't know what is, Jason. <laughs> I'll, I'll count it. I'll count it. <laughs> yeah, just, 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 just past the threshold. Right. Just good, good, good stuff. Yeah. I mean, if you're not having it, I'll pull it back into dark optimism and claim it for my own. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Chris? Any last, any last words? Um, well, yeah, fun listening to Sean then, you know, that's very, pretty much second what he just said. And that's very much been part of my experience. I mean, partly, um, you know, jacking in an academic career to be a grower um, and, and to be a small scale commercial grower, very similar experience, partly in terms of just getting kind of crushed by the existing economic system in, in a way I was a little bit naive about. And also feeling that it had, you know, I had to make a success of it because we have this very, you know, this narrative that, you know, if you do something, you know, you have to, you have to succeed. It has to work, you know, and, 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 and you know, defining that in quite narrowly sort of careerist terms. So it's, it's taken me quite, you know, similar journey to Sean in that sense, um, um, you know, of burning out a bit. And then, you know, so I think when we're talking about food, you know, just remember that we're animals, we have to eat. Um, but, um, you know, we don't have to, we don't have to have money to eat, you know, we need to sort of um, find other ways to, um, you know, to, to generate well being. So, you know, that's been quite a journey for me. And in some ways, by the sound of it, a similar uh, journey to Sean's. I mean, I think it's good to attend to burnout in other people, because a lot of people, uh, you know, exactly as Sean was saying, a lot of people really grind themselves down doing things because they're good things, you know, because they're connecting people or building community. But, but you know, that's where we need to attend to the relationships and and, and to be attentive to others as well, I think, in terms of how much they're taking on so so be supportive of each other in sort of finding our way through this um but yeah certainly um uh you know it when it comes to food sort of trying to do something sort of on 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 kind of open markets i think is um is a you know can be a short route to burnout so trying to trying to innovate um your way around that however it might be is you know is a is, is a lesson i've learned and and that does draw you into human relationships which are kind of more interesting in a way <laughs> so chris i just i have to say that i i feel like some people listening to this might feel like so are you just a complete hypocrite then with this whole small farm future thing and actually you found small farming just like really left you burned out and exhausted and you're talking nonsense and i wonder if you wanted to just uh say something to that take well, I think small, I think small farming, well, any type, it's not just small farming. I mean, basically all farmers are burnt out, really, you know, the whole, you know, globally of all scales, you know. Um, and in fact, you know, one thing on our farm, you know, we're, we're lucky in some ways, but in other ways, we've been strategic. A lot of farmers are super leveraged, you know, they've got huge input costs, which means they've got a you know, the exact opposite of what you were just talking about, Sean, you know, that they've therefore got to crank out a huge amount of product and and you know they might earn a little bit more money than i do but um by god you know they 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 they're stressed about it so 
so no i'm not saying that you shouldn't farm but i guess uh um you know farming uh, i mean it's a really interesting question actually because you know farming globally you know if, if you step into the mainstream what farming is about is like any other business it's making money what farming should be about is producing food and fiber um you know for yourself or your household or your community uh and i'm not saying that money shouldn't there shouldn't you know i'm not saying that there should be no place for money or or other um units of exchange in that but in as much as what you're what you should really be doing is producing the food and the fiber that you need or that you love and not trying to you know trying to avoid it being um uh, you know uh, being drawn into a kind of uh commodification route around it i think you know is is important and that's where you know again to to wrap it up back in terms of my latest book you know for all you know i know i know where george is coming from and and wanting the best but i think there's real dangers of those kind of top-down techno-fix narratives that what what ultimately that will be is a narrative of enclosure of moving people off the land and saying that you know that you know people who are just there producing food for themselves or whatever or for their communities you know not good enough you know that that's not going to answer the world's problems so you know we need a, a, a you know a different a better technical solution and you know my argument is no we don't you know we, we you know we need to be on the land we need to be figuring this stuff out but we don't need to be um yeah you know people often talk about the misery of the small farming life and you know it can be miserable but a lot of that misery is generated externally by the larger sort of economic forces bearing down on farmers so what we really need to do is is kind of innovate our way out of those economic uh, forces that you know ultimately it's kind of insane that it's not that hard to produce food. It's not that hard to produce livelihood. But we've made it very difficult for ourselves out of these huge, highly kind of mediated collective um, uh, systems like money and, and, and you know, the, the kind of political systems we've created. So, yeah, no. So I'm definitely not saying don't farm. It'll burn you out. I'm saying... <laughs> sort of um find a way to really farm and and you know and rather than farming money i, I guess you know which is easier said than done you know easier said than done but Im important i think it reminds me of a line i read once from a farmer who just said i don't want to compete with anyone i just want to farm well which kind of yeah. so your next book is not going to be called small commodity farm future <laughs> <laughs> I, I no, yeah. I don't know, Jason. Let's our predictions of the future are always wrong, so we shouldn't we shouldn't <laughs> presume. <laughs> yeah. If we start talking about next books at this stage, that that's going to prompt a, a sort of feeling of burnout for me. But uh, you know that yeah. I think, um, yeah, yeah. No, I I I don't want to write another spreadsheet brain one though. I want to I want to develop the kind of lines of uh, you know much more along the lines of what we've been talking about today i think are the conversations we need to move on to but we do need to, i think you know we do need to collectively um be aware of the forces that are you know potentially you know all that stuff we talked about the, the sort of um narratives over access to land and class sort of issues that you know um you know we do need to sort of be on the side of uh, or you know like you were saying with paul king's north really interesting that whole thing with the the wind turbines you know we we need to um you know be be very thoughtful about what what we're what we're advocating for and what we're bringing into into being
just one stray thought about the class thing is it occurs to me that there's there are different claims on class solidarity in which I mean, you know, there's some arguments out there that, uh, you know, securing commodity food production for cities is a class issue because it feeds the working class. Uh, and then there's the class issue that we talk about of access to land, uh, you know, household and community provisioning. Um, so that presents a potential competing class claim, which um, is a difficult issue to sort out. Um, and I think we've kind of touched on it in this conversation. Um, just wanted to include that, that, that thought there. I have a lot of stray thoughts today. I don't have too many <laughs> whole, whole arguments, just stray thoughts. Um, well, I mean, both Chris and I have been on the board of uh, an organization over here called the Ecological Land Cooperative, which, um, you know, is seeking to engage with the extremely difficult tensions around that. I mean, the, you know, the the two, I, I, I understand the planning permission thing is, is quite different in a US context, but um, certainly over here, the, the two big obstacles are, you know, the price of land and the the permission to build a home on it, essentially. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it comes actually back for me to another one of um, David Fleming, probably my favorite David Fleming line, which I'm sure I must have mentioned last time we spoke of uh, large scale problems do not require large scale solutions, but small scale solutions within large scale frameworks. And for me, that's the Ecological Land Cooperative is a beautiful example of that. It's like, how do we create an organization that can do a lot of the admin and bureaucracy of the kind of planning bit so that the small scale growers can grow and you know have the relationship with the land and also without getting into it all creating a business model whereby we can make that land available more cheaply than than it would be otherwise available um and in so doing you enable the people who are brought alive by you know having that relationship to the land to as far as is possible because obviously this is a uh, kind of an inherent compromise of an organization in the sense that it's trying to exist within the current system. It's not saying, let's just take some land and defend it and do what we want on it. It's saying, you know, we're going to do this in a way that 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 doesn't break the law. And that, um, but within that context, how can we make it as easy as possible for people to follow what brings them alive and farm in a as, as little commodified way as possible, uh, as affordable a way as possible, and as, as a bureaucracy-free way as possible, um, because actually, as, as Chris says, growing food in itself is not a hardship. There's no reason why we should see that as, as a, as a tension, like, oh, well, people have to eat. So someone has to do the awful work of actually creating that food. You know, that, that, that's, that's not a real tension at all. Um, so yeah, we've, we've, we've both had some practical engagement with those issues. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm not sure I'd particularly share that framing of it as a, as a, as a class tension, but then, um, Again, I, I tend to think much more in terms of um, well, I guess what I'm polarizing frames than right and left and what It's an argument that I think will be increasingly like George Mambio are already has kind of wielded that argument, but it's an argument that will be increasingly wielded towards communities who who push back against the pressures of commodity production. So that's just something to be on our radar. Um, but to, to another point, uh, you know, I, I do think it, you know, access to land, I think is going to be probably, you know, as things start breaking down more, uh, will be the key issue. Because I know from my perspective, like I'm on a, you know, a family kind of homestead, 
I, you know, I'm basically, we both have other jobs in order to support our farming, not the, not the other way around. Right. And, and so it's more about, um, you know, if we don't want to do commodity production and pay our property taxes and our mortgage and everything, then we actually have to have another income or other incomes. Um, and, you know, and that's somewhat congruent, my understanding historically, like, you know, agrarian peasants have always had diversified livelihood strategies have, you know, perhaps some have worked, you know, uh, in, in other fields and that has brought into the, you know, the family or community, um, you know, farming enterprise. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's going to be one of those things where, you know, under the current, at least in the United States, at least under the current incentive strategies, you can't just farm, you know, in a non-commodity commodified way you won't pay your bills um and so I mean, how do we how do we address that i think is and we've we've had conversations on the podcast about community land trusts and and agricultural reserves preserves that you know people are experimenting so there's a lot of interesting ideas being brought to bear uh, but i think we're just at the very beginning of that you know mm. very difficult and very important conversation yeah, I mean, just uh, briefly on, I mean, I agree. I think access to land is going to be absolutely critical, you know, worldwide um, in the future. And, um, uh, you know, you without getting into the, the sort of minutiae, um, you, you know, that's where the, there are going to be hard politics and, you know, a need to, um, you know, to, to sort of open up land to, 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 to community access and to household access. I mean, that... The sort of the, the 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 class notion that you raised about needing commodified farming to feed working people in cities. I mean, I guess I, you know, my my take. You know, I, I guess I speak for for a sort of agrarian populist perspective, which is that, yeah, sure, where we're at now in this heavily urbanized world, uh, you know, people in cities need to be fed, otherwise they will starve. But then, you know, I think too much of that kind of class framing has emerged out of marxism and and it's kind of modernist grounding in in progress you know the sort of notion that 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 people that 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 are kind of working a proletarian working class that was divorced from access to land that was going to be the force that opened up history to to, to progress and development and i mean my argument is kind of the counter to that 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 actually you know when you look at the way peasant peoples, as you said, you know, have, have done all sorts of things, but there's been a kind of fierce commitment to uh, retaining access to land. And I think, you know, now we need to turn that around and have a fierce commitment to opening up access to land because it's not, you know, the the renewal is not going to come from commodified routes of, of, of you know, of um, food or, or production of other things to service um, working class communities in in cities, you know, I think that's the kind of the old um, narrative of Marxism, which um, you know is uh, basically has had its day, and you know we need a kind of um, uh, a, an agrarian narrative um, of of creating you know widespread access to land and the and the productive uh, capacities of land is where we need to be going really um even if in the short term you know it's not like you know it's not like you jason or i can sort of feed um you know the the our, our nearby cities sort of on our own but that's that's the direction of travel we need to be um heading towards in my in my opinion 
Well, I feel like we could continue on forever, just kind of, you know, uh, as a flowing river, it could just keep going. Um, but I think we should we should maybe put a hard stop here. <laughs> um, no more stray thoughts. Yeah, no more stray <laughs> thoughts, unfortunately. They'll all come in five minutes when I wish I had said something um, or asked a question. I wish I had asked certain questions. Okay, well, this has been- I will just do it again in five minutes, shall we? Yeah, that sounds good. We'll have a whole series. <laughs> Well, we can do this more. Um, so if there's any any uh, stray thoughts or uh, untied threads um, that drive us crazy uh, or just further areas to explore, we can do this more. No one's stopping us. Um, so, yeah, we can talk about it. But this, is, this has been great. Um, I think this will come out probably next Tuesday, um, most likely. So... Take care. Take care, guys. This has been great. And I'll see you next time. All right. Thanks very much. Yeah. Thanks. Cheers.